0: Chapter 16 of The Recording Angel by Edwin Arnold Brenholtz. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kate Fallis. Chapter 16. I cannot tell what you and other men think of this life, but for myself, I had as lief not be as live to be in awe of such a thing as I myself. Shakespeare the speed with which that crowd of ultra strenuous strikers vanished from sight when they saw arndt foe would have been a valuable lesson to those who believe in the courage of the violent class of men A moment before, they had been cursing Arnt and Craggy and shouting, "'Kill the traitor! Kill the man that aided Craggy to escape! Stand up for your rights!' etc. But only half a dozen of them had the courage to face the result of their action, and even they started to run when they saw the freight agent and the telegraph operator raise Arnt and carry him within the building.' but these last ran right into the arms of baker who was just returning from performing the mission on which arndt had sent him baker had thoughtfully brought with him a detachment of the city police and they caught every one of the rioters after a short and sharp tussle Among them was one ragged specimen of humanity, who, when he found himself actually in custody, boldly corroborated the testimony of the others, and asserted that he was the man who had the honor of having downed the traitor, as he persisted in calling Arndt. In the meantime, the station agent had telephoned for Kennedy— He promptly responded, and examined Arndt, who was perfectly conscious when the doctor arrived, the cold-water applications of the agent having done their work. But he still felt too weak to rise, and it was only the word of Kennedy, "'Brace up, Arndt, brace up! There are no bones broken! Don't you get down now and give Nettie another shock!' that sent the blood bounding through his veins, and enabled him to control the quivering of his relaxed muscles." when he was confronted with the fellow who was still loudly bragging of his exploit, Arndt seemed dazed, for there were notes in the man's voice that made him think that he had met him somewhere, but for the life of him, for the time being, he could not place the man. This bothered Arndt very much, and all the way to the police station he was trying to recollect, and at last he said, "'I do not believe that I have ever seen his face before. "'I never forget either a face or a voice.' "'And then he had a very important thought, "'which caused him to say to the lieutenant in charge of the force, "'Officer, I wish you would be particularly careful "'in guarding that man with the sandy hair and beard. "'I may have a more serious charge to bring against him than rioting. "'He will not get away from me.' was the reply, as he handcuffed the man to two of the officers. There are several of his class up here from Clyde and St. Louis and other big cities just now, and they are keeping us much too busy to suit me. He soon saw the fellow behind the bars, and to the questions of the officer in charge the man gave the highly original information, that his maiden name was John Smith, and that he came from the town of Nowhere, and was going to return there, to the best of his knowledge and belief, and that all he regretted was that he had not succeeded in sending Craggy and Arndt there ahead of him. The strikers who had been arrested with him were left to suffer the results of their action, and the refusal of the Union to interfere in this and other cases in which a few turbulent men violated the law had an excellent effect. For, as Chandler once said to Arndt, we cannot make much of a fight against the rich man's breaking the laws while we are doing the same thing. As soon as they were committed for trial, Arndt took the electric car that passed closest to the river road and was quickly at the door of his present home. He was afraid that some report of his recent danger might have reached them, and indeed Kennedy had taken the precaution to pass that way and tell Annie. Arndt found that Nettie was still sleeping soundly. After telling his sister all about the occurrences of the past night and morning, she looked carefully at his pale face, and compelled him to admit that he was feeling very badly, but he still insisted that he must go to the mansion to find out about Mr. Endy, and see whether he could be of use there. Well, you may think you are going to do that, thinking won't hurt you a bit, but I know that you are going to bed, and that right now. "'said Annie, very emphatically. "'And then she added, "'Those are Dr. Kennedy's instructions, "'and here is the medicine he left for you.' "'And then Arndt obeyed orders, "'and when he awoke after dark, "'when the excitement under which he had been working "'had passed away, "'he found himself unable to get up. "'In fact, when Arthur arrived on the noon train on Sunday, "'he learned all that he could at the mansion, "'and then came to see Arndt, "'and found him still in bed.' To Arthur, Arndt related the minutest detail of what had occurred, not omitting even his thoughts in connection with the events. And then Arthur said, Well, when I saw that hair, which was such damning evidence in the mind of Goodenough, I just smiled serenely. Now I'm going to tell you that there is not the slightest doubt of the innocence of Robert Endy. He is as guiltless of that crime as either you or I. Fortunately for him, I was on his trail within a short time after he started, although he doubled on me and I have thus lost track of him for a while. But he has told me all about his doings, and I find that every statement of his is corroborated. Still, there are reasons why he must remain in jail, until I can lay my hands on the guilty man. Among those reasons are... First, the controllable magistrates put in office by the rich are now being controlled by popular clamour. The testimony I can produce will not now be given a fair hearing. Secondly, he is safer in jail at present. There might even be some rich man who would be willing to discredit the working man's cause by having him killed and putting the blame on the strikers.' Thirdly, as long as Endy is in jail, the really guilty person will be off his guard, and this is an advantage I cannot forgo. In order to bring him through with his name unsmirched, I must lay my hand on the guilty party, and I tell you now that I haven't the slightest clue today. I am worse off than I ever was before in my life. I thought it might be the man who attacked you when I heard about that. "'But since he was coming after you at the same moment you heard the cry that lets him out, there must have been another man. "'I thought of Craggy's secretary, though I ought to be ashamed to say it. "'He is a real nice fellow.' simply because Craggy has a motive for wishing Mr. Endy put out of the way, if only he could throw the blame on someone else. For I have found out that Johnson did not tell him about the change in the will by which the strikers are to benefit in case of Mr. Endy's death. I went to see Mr. Johnson as soon as Robert was committed. He had just heard of the attack on Mr. Endy and talked pretty freely. Something must have got him down on Craggy." And so far as the secretary is concerned, I find that he was talking to someone in his room in the hotel almost all night, and certainly at the time of the attack, for both his voice and that of the other party were heard at that hour, and that lets him out. And besides, Apart from doing Craggy's work, Chambers lacks a motive, and he would scarcely be likely to put his head in a noose for the president's dollars. I have known for some time that Chambers is financially well fixed. And as to Craggy, why, I don't think that he has the courage to do it though otherwise I would not put it beyond him. I tell you, a man that will deliberately ruin his best friend because he has the opportunity to add ten millions to his pile and then never shows the least sign of remorse or does one thing to right the wrong when his friend takes his poverty to heart and blows out his brains is simply a murderer at heart and is only restrained by fear of the law from killing all those who stand in his way and that's craggy, though few people know it. But in this instance, he could not have struck a worse blow to his cause than this one, and he has not usually acted like a fool. Still, I will continue to watch him, and I am going to pump him dry if I can secure an interview with him. But Arthur said not one word to Arndt about the princess, even though she had totally surprised him by promising at once that she would willingly, and without pay, testify to the truth, if her testimony were needed. Arndt then insisted that he was able to go with Arthur to the police station in order to try to identify his assailant at the depot as the man that had attacked him by night. On the way there, he remarked, The newspapers today must be very unpleasant reading to President Craigie. Pshaw, said Arthur. They disgust me. After being bought for years with his money, or by fear of him, to turn as they have done in a day, is enough to make one lose faith in human nature. You must expect just that result, said Arndt. If you take a man's manhood away, no matter by what means, you haven't a thing left to rely on. Right you are cried Arthur. That's what's the matter with the whole infernal system. It isn't empty stomachs and bare backs that is the chief grievance. It is simply degraded manhood and lost freedom. Then they were both lost in thought until they reached the station, and when they saw the man again, although Arndt felt sure, after hearing his voice again, that it was the same person, still he would not make a charge on so slight a ground, and he was preparing to come away, when the fellow himself helped him out by exclaiming, as Arndt rested his aching head on his hand, Ha ha! Head's pretty sore, ain't it? I sure would have finished you if you hadn't dodged. But when he saw that Arthur, who until this moment had been listening a little further down the corridor, had heard, he would not be induced to say another word. Then Arndt lodged information against him, and the newspapers had another day of big headlines and sensational editorials. As he parted from the detective, Arndt promised to run down to Clyde on the next day and convey Arthur's assurance to Robert Endy that all would be well in the end, since the testimony necessary to corroborate the detective's knowledge of his being in Clyde on the night of the crime had been secured. So Robert heard the words that assured him of ultimate freedom, from the lips of the man whom he had vowed to pursue with his vengeance through this life, and afterwards if possible. Arndt had undertaken this mission very unwillingly, and had only consented when Arthur assured him that he himself positively could not spare the time from the case, either to write or go personally to report and the cool reception Robert gave him made him regret very much that he had yielded. But Robert had been studying his own and other men's lives by the light of the letter his father had written, which he had read and re-read since his incarceration, and his brusque manner to Arndt was, in reality, only a mask to hide his softened feelings.' So, when Arndt turned to leave the cell, after asking him if there was anything he could do for him, Robert spoke up promptly. "'My father insists that I have grossly misjudged you and your motives, and that you are a truthful and disinterested man. I want you to answer me one question. Have you ever doubted my innocence of the charge brought against me?' Arndt looked him steadily in the eye and replied— "'Never for an instant. I protested and protested against Goodenough's interpretation of the evidence, and against his swearing out a warrant for you. Although I have not the slightest idea who is the guilty man, I knew that it was never your hand that struck that blow.' And then, for the first time, Robert broke down, and had to turn away to hide his feelings— Of the remainder of that interview, there is not a word to record. At the sight of the distress of his boyhood's friend, all the hard feeling died out of the heart of Arndt, and he even forgot Nettie's vow, for the time. They remained together, talking earnestly for several hours, and when Arndt left the prison, he knew all that Arthur had not felt free to communicate. And the old turnkey smiled as he overheard Robert call after Arndt, "'Good-bye, old fellow. Bring me news of father and Nettie as often as you can.' And Arndt's whole-souled reply, "'Good-bye, old man. I will be sure to do so. Keep a hopeful heart in you. Better days are almost in sight.' Now this was the same Monday morning on which the first installment of the million was to be paid to Chambers for his friend. If the secretary felt any doubt as to its being promptly on hand, he certainly showed none.' Mr. Craggy was very nervous, and could scarcely attend to business until the express package from the bank arrived, and had been handed to Chambers. Then he brightened up and readily granted the respectfully asked permission of the secretary for time to count the money, and examine the bills to see that none of them had been marked, that being contrary to stipulations.' Chambers then retired to his apartment in the car, and was absent about half an hour, and when he came out he brought with him the package done up precisely as before, and placed it on the table in front of him, where both he and the President could see it constantly. Mr. Craggy objected emphatically to this arrangement, and stated plainly that he did not wish to be reminded every moment of the day that he was the victim of a blackmailer. Chambers said, in his usual quiet tone, that he regretted the necessity, but that, since he was responsible for the money until he delivered it to his friend, he could not put his mind on the usual work of his secretaryship, unless the package were where he could see it, and he then suggested that in the future they should have it sent to them at Steelton by the late afternoon express, so as to leave him free to attend properly to his work and mr Craggy was only too glad to agree to this thus it came to pass that every afternoon except the fifth and tenth the payments were promptly made to chambers and in the mail received at that same hour he always found a letter for him without marks on the outside This he would then proceed to read and destroy in the President's sight, and would then immediately name a station, sometimes up and sometimes down the road. Even then, the President and his detectives never knew where the money was to be delivered, since they sometimes stopped short of the station and twice went far beyond it. Their starting from Steelton as a base suited Mr. Craggy perfectly, as he was obliged to be on the spot to attend to the strike. Chambers and the train crew lost a lot of sleep, as the stopping place often was not reached until the night was far gone, but as the car stood almost all day on the side track at Steelton, and as Chambers thought that some of the corruption fund could be profitably used on the crew, there was no grumbling heard. Mr. Craggy had immediately set his detectives to work on the case— But, since he would not tell them all he knew, although they carried out their instructions to the letter, and watched every motion of chambers, whenever he could be kept in sight, and although they shadowed every man, woman, and child, to whom the secretary addressed a single word, and even went to the extent of opening some of the letters he wrote, They found out only continual evidences of the innumerable acts of benevolence that Chambers was performing, and they one and all ended in concluding that Chambers was the best man they had ever met, and that Craggy had certainly gone crazy to put them to watching him. Mr. Craggy daily reminded Chambers that he would stop the payments the instant he could catch the blackmailer, But as he did not even find a clue, and as Mr. Endy continued in a very precarious condition for many weeks, day after day, found one more payment made, and Mr. Craggy less and less likely to take the only method of protecting himself, namely, by defying Chambers to do his worst, this he dared not even think of doing, and Chambers knew it. In fact, he practically gave up all attempts to catch Chambers' accomplice after the fourth day, for on the morning of the fifth the secretary said, Now, Mr. Craggy, you were complaining yesterday that the circumstance of your drawing such large sums of ready cash from the bank was being brooded abroad, and that it was hurting our cause. I will explain that. My friend is very much displeased at the unnecessary trouble you are giving him, and he has probably taken this method of warning you to stick to your bargain. The truth is, your man came very near to running on my friend the other night, and he was very angry, and said that if the violation of the spirit of the agreement was not stopped, he would take some means of showing you that he could damage you, even if he was bound not to carry the notes to the strikers.' For, you see, I did not tell him of your threat to try to catch him, as he had made it a sine qua non that all efforts to trace him be discontinued until the last payment was made, and I knew that he would immediately throw you overboard if I reported your determination. Anyway, I will ask it as a personal favor that my old friend, the conductor, be restored to his place, and the detective conductor you put on yesterday be sent about his business.' I am not a blackmailer. I am simply doing a certain work in the only way it can be done. So the detectives were called off, the payments were promptly made, and on the tenth morning Mr. Craggy was handed the stenographic notes. These included the Johnson interview and several other important conversations which had occurred during the trip at moments when the President had unburdened himself to Chambers. Referring to these, Chambers said, Those are the ones I tested him on, and, of course, these notes are not at all like his ordinary style, for they were written in a very cramped position. "'How am I to know that they are what you say they are?' asked Mr. Craggy petulantly. "'I cannot read a word of this style of stenography.' "'I had not thought of that, but I am perfectly familiar with light-line stenography, although I do not write it. You take the paper and I'll see what I can make out of the notes,' said Chambers.' And then he read them off so fluently, and they agreed so perfectly with the longhand copy before the President, that he was thoroughly satisfied, and immediately proceeded to burn both the notes and the translation. And when there was nothing but a pile of ashes left, he said with a great sigh, "'That's over! Now I'm going to get even with Johnson for not standing by me in this matter!' "'In regard to the rest of my friend's stenographic notes, which you don't seem to have thought about,' said Chambers— especially the remainder of the one with mr johnson i can assure you that they are today but a memory my friend as well as i saw that these were all he needed so i should think said mr craggy Not once during these days had there been a recurrence of the impertinent words of Chambers. He was a constant wonder and study to Mr. Craggy. His old manner of deferential consideration and unobtrusive suggestion of valuable points never failed, and, if it had not been for the daily evidence of the payments, the President would at times have been in doubt as to whether he had not in reality dreamed that day's interview with his secretary." At first he had attempted to administer the Secret Service Fund himself, but he found it too entirely foreign to his exclusive habits to come into direct contact with the man or men he wished to purchase or control, and as Chambers was right at hand, and doing his other work faithfully, he soon entrusted the matter to him again. So he was quite prepared to answer the question, "'Have you a man ready to take my place?' which Chambers asked as soon as the last midnight trip had been made, and the last installment been safely delivered to the unknown friend. "'No, sir,' replied the President slowly. "'I have not, and I think that I will make no change, so long as this strike lasts, or perhaps as long as your conduct and work are as satisfactory as at present.' To himself, he said, I think it will be best to keep you right where I can watch you, sir. Chambers immediately replied, Thank you, sir. And Mr. Craggy added, Your salary will, of course, remain doubled. If you desire more, say so. I want to know that the fund is being spent as I direct. Chambers smiled as he replied, "'Every penny is leaving my hands, but, of course, in thus changing methods I cannot be answerable that results shall be satisfactory. If you will pardon me, I will say that I believe fully in the efficacy of the doctrine of fear. All the promises of heaven have not, in all the centuries, produced the results that half a dozen thoroughly earnest sermons on a red-hot hell can show.' so far as making the mass pliable to the will of the ruling class is concerned. Of course, if one is working for a moral change in the subject, there is little choice between rewards or punishments, but we are not taking any concern for that, and by purchasing instead of driving, we simply deplete our treasury. Nevertheless, I will carry out your instructions to the letter mr Craggy looked at chambers in astonishment but he did not offer to change his methods and simply said we start for washington at daybreak let us make the trip as speedily as this new freak of voss's will permit i'll give him a lesson at the next election of officers of the road Again, Chambers smiled, for he knew that President Voss had just issued an order as President of the Consolidated Railroads of the United States, forbidding the delay of regular trains for any person for any cause, except upon the request of the President of the United States, who should say that it was on government business. So Chambers said, "'That is an instance of what I was just asserting. You made Voss—what was he before you took him up? Simply a third-rate lawyer in a county town?' Now he thinks you cannot advance him any further, and immediately the element of fear proves to be the stronger, for he is now afraid of public opinion, and it rules him, even to the extent of sending you a letter in which he openly avows that because public sentiment is so emphatically in favour of the order, he has been obliged to sign it, and will not dare to violate it. "'Damn the public and their sentiment,' said Mr. Craggy. "'It is the most unreliable thing in the world, "'and no one ever knows what it will operate on next. "'Did you notice the account of that woman "'who had the impudence to say to a rich man "'when he presented his pass on the road?' I, even as poor as I am, have helped to pay your way, sir. A rich man should not take favors from such as I am. And don't you know that the headlines those rascally papers gave to the affair are going to make any one with any fine feeling in his makeup refuse to travel on passes hereafter? Chambers said, I think you are right in your estimate of the importance of that apparently small affair for the papers reported that she was so vigorously applauded in the car that not another pass was shown, and the thing has spread like wildfire over the land. Now there are hundreds of thousands of people in this country whom I could neither bribe nor drive, and yet who thankfully accepted every pass I had sent to them, and then found themselves unable to account, even to themselves, why they continued to support a system which is clearly working in the interest of the rich, "'How am I to reach such people in the future?' But Mr. Craggy gave him no answer, and retired to sleep soundly for the first time since the night of the attack on Mr. Endy, and on the next day they went to Washington to set certain already prepared wheels in motion, for in spite of all his efforts the strike had continued to go against him, and the funds of the strikers seemed in no danger of exhaustion, and so Mr. Craigie decided to not wait for the expiration of the month's time he had named, before asking the President of the United States to remember certain obligations he had incurred and certain promises he had made before he received the nomination. From the very commencement of the strike, the burden on Truman and the strike committee and the various subcommittees was very great— and it was made harder to bear during the first six weeks by the knowledge that if they had been able to consult with Mr. Endy, and have his active cooperation as promised, many of their difficulties would never have shown themselves. During all these anxious days, Arndt spent every minute that he could spare from his duties, either with Robert in the prison, or by the bedside of Mr. Endy, or in doing what could be done to cheer and comfort Nettie MacDonald. It was a happy day for all, when at last Mr. Endy was pronounced out of danger, and then King told Arndt that he might answer questions when they were asked, but not before, so that even then it was weeks before he was able to tell his friend about Robert and of the need of the strikers for financial aid. In the meantime he had drawn on the fund he had set aside for going to housekeeping, until the fund was exhausted. He had spent every dollar he received for his services to the Union, in relieving cases of sickness or distress that came to his notice, and he was actually poorer than ever before in his life." He had been acting as secretary for Mr. Endy, by Robert's instruction, and although Arndt said nothing of his own financial condition, Mr. Endy, as soon as he was able to think on business matters at all, requested him to continue in that capacity, and named a liberal amount as his salary. So Arndt, as well as the rest of the strikers, had pecuniary cause to be thankful for his friend's recovery. End of Chapter Sixteen